Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. And tell your friends they can subscribe wherever they normally get their podcasts. You can listen to back episodes of Policy Speaking and learn more about the Public Policy Forum and our research projects at ppforum.ca or on the Twitter handle ppforumca. Stick around until the end and you'll get to participate in our new segment. Each week we'll test your knowledge with a suitably obscure yet meaningful piece of Canadian political trivia. Be the first answer on Twitter or Instagram and you'll own bragging rights for the week among our wonky audience. But first, here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Policy Speaking. It's early September, which here in Canada has always been marked by back to school, both for kids and for post-secondary students. Where spring and summer are the seasons of no more pencils, no more books, September is new beginnings, new knowledge, new friends. A bit scary at first, but with a lifetime of benefits. This year, however, the back to school experience looks very different because of the COVID pandemic. Here at PPF, we regularly call on the expertise of our friends and post-secondary institutions in our own research work, and we happily count them among our most engaged members. Today, we're going to look under the hood on how the pandemic has impacted post-secondary. To do that, we've invited two PPF members in great standing and with encyclopedic knowledge of the sector. Paul Davidson, the president of Universities Canada, joins us, and Denise Amio, the president and CEO of Colleges and Institutes Canada, also with us today. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be with you. Hello. Nice being here. Good to have you both with us today. And before we look at the current situation where we find ourselves right now, I want to cast back to March and the original lockdown, which obviously included post-secondary institutions. And I would imagine few shutdowns were more challenging than the institutions you represent. What did it look like? And what did universities and colleges learn, do you think, in the first instance? It, it, it does bear thinking back to those uh, cold, dark days in March when uh, the world really did change very, very quickly. Uh, for universities, uh, campuses were shut down very quickly, uh, sometimes by the universities making the choice, other times by governments making the choice and telling institutions that you will be closed by such and such a time. And what that meant was shutting down small cities, uh, large research enterprises, classrooms with uh, thousands, millions of students. And so in the first 10 days after the pandemic struck Canada, Canadian universities moved over 1.4 million learners online. Something that said couldn't happen in a decade, happened in 10 days. We also uh, transitioned uh, residences uh, to make them available for frontline health workers so that they could stay safely in university residences. We depopulated the campuses uh, in, in a safe and orderly way while providing uh, a safe and secure environment for students that didn't have a home to go home to, for example, international students. So it's quite uh, an intense period of time. Uh, and, and I think universities did a good job of meeting the needs of, of the moment. Denise, uh, similar experience for you? Similar experience. So I won't repeat what Paul said because it was basically the, the same thing. So I will just add to uh, other things that happened that I'm sure also happen in university settings. Um, the uh, colleges and institutes also uh, made available their equipment of uh, PPE to help the uh, health sector because uh, they do have labs, they offer nursing program, and uh, in many programs they had uh, equipment that was in, in uh, big need. Um, they also looked after international students because some could not just go back home. So because of that, uh, residences stayed open. 
but they needed to ensure there was enough space. So in some cases, they had to rent hotel to accommodate the, the students. And uh, all that to say is that they had to pivot uh, very, very quickly uh, in order to support their students and sometimes even providing uh, e-grocery uh, um, voucher uh, for students that uh, didn't have uh, their job anymore to buy literally groceries and they were uh, stuck uh, on campus, but they still needed to eat. In some cases, cafeteria could be kept open for them, but in other uh, cases, the cafeterias were not available and the students didn't have uh, funding. And we know that a number of our members uh, also had some fundraising activities, in fact, to support the students from uh, a scholarship perspective, just to sustain themselves. Because, you know, all those part-time jobs suddenly, uh, in many cases, just disappear. I'll just jump in if I can on that, Ed, as well, because I think one of the untold stories is the way alumni across the country from both colleges and universities really did step forward in response to those urgent financial needs of students. So even before government was able to mobilize their resources, alumni stepped forward to support students uh, uh, across the country uh, in those very uh, trying first weeks. It does remind us, of course, we think about uh, universities and colleges in terms of teaching and in terms of research, but it uh, reminds us of the critical student services aspect as well. So now, now we're in the fall, the early fall, and everybody's had the summer to think about how they provide a good learning experience, think how they provide a uh, good teaching experience, think how they provide safe environments in this tough situation. I realize every school is different. But overall, maybe in turn, you can each tell us, what is the mix of online and in-person teaching and research looking like? And also, has enrollment been impacted? Are people staying away or are they actually coming out more? Okay, so the first thing I would say, uh, Ed, is that we, we add the spring-summer semester also <laughs> to experiment with. This represents about 22% of our student population. So we had the chance to uh, experiment with the physical distancing and adapt so that people would be ready for the fall semesters. And we had a, a number of programs that required hands-on that were done in fact in spring and summer, even though they were part of the winter semester. So now, if you ask me specifically for the fall, it looks like if it is hybrid uh, across the, the board uh, in all the provinces and territories, meaning that there will be a portion that will go online and a portion that will be done uh, hands-on. Um, that means that in some cases where you add maybe 30 students in the classroom for a lab or for workshop with hands-on, it means that you have to repeat it three times this time uh, because of space and things like that. So this is a big, big change. Uh, also, uh, a lot of my members, what they offered to their faculty was one week or two weeks of training on the pedagogy of online to really talk about how do you engage students? Because engagement is, is, is the big thing. It, it, you know, it's not like theory that you can just say, no, how do you engage and ensure that they will uh, still do teamwork and interact with each other and interact with, uh, with uh, faculty. So this was something very, very important. And a lot of work also uh, that has happened on the work integrated placement because a number of the work integrated placement disappeared. About what proportion of those might have disappeared, would you say, roughly? Uh, it, it depends which program. So if you talk about the health sector, in fact, they were more than before. 
uh, if you talk about other aspects, they are less than before. The IT sector, very easy to accommodate. So it's hard for me to give you a number at this stage because it, it all, um, it, it's very different uh, by program. If I look though, uh, at those integrated learning. The good news is that there have been a number of employers that have been willing to do the, them online, even though they had never met those students before and they took a leap of faith. So that was very good news. Um, the other thing that happened in the fall is that thanks to the support of the government of Canada, that was historic, uh, you will remember back in May, if I recall well, $9 billion of dollars. This has helped, we believe, students to decide to stay in school in the fall or to start uh, their education uh, at the college or institute in the fall. Because when we look at the enrollment, it looks pretty stable domestically. Uh, even in Quebec, the see right now an increase of 3%. Let's come back. We'll discuss in a few moments internationally. But Paul, are you seeing the same sort of experience where domestic enrollment is uh, about what you may have expected? It's, it's a little early to know for certain, but the indicators are that domestic enrollment is by and large holding. There are some regional variations and some institutional variations, but in aggregate, a domestic enrollment appears to be holding. We'll know a little better later in the fall uh, once uh, once people pass the course drop-off date. And, and that speaks to what universities have been doing uh, as colleges have through the spring and summer, which is making their online offerings more robust so that every university in the country is able to offer a full and complete term online, but with a goal of getting back to normal just as soon as health conditions permit. And we really take our cues from from uh, public health officials as to at what pace that can happen. And so in addition to investing in the technology and the training of faculty who've been great and really stepped up in innovative ways, universities have also been adapting their physical space to make sure that uh, students can get into labs in a way that's uh, physically distanced, that uh, small classes can be held in large rooms, that residences can be repurposed that might have held four people, might now hold one or two people. Um, so there have been large infrastructure investments, technological investments, and, and pedagogical investments. And as all with the view to uh, keeping the educational enterprise going at as full capacity as possible as we navigate the pandemic. I was struck over the last week, 10 days or so, to see people moving into residence, as you normally see this time of year. I you know, read about different places where People were keeping down the numbers, as you say, the numbers in, in a room, the numbers in a residence, the number of cars and people, you know, moving in uh, at, at a time. But have you also got a sense of, you know, proportionalities here? Like, what percentage of students roughly will be attending university physically, at least for some of their courses this year? It really depends uh, by region and by institution. In some parts of the country, there, the pandemic has been uh, has had a very light touch. And so they're able to open their institutions a little more fully to uh, the student participation on campus and to researchers. Um, and in, in others, I mean, generally speaking, uh, uh, university residences are, offer, are, are operating at about one half to one quarter capacity. Uh, it depends on the age of the infrastructure to begin with. Uh, four, piece, four person rooms are being uh, reduced down to one person rooms. And in some cases, uh, uh, the infrastructure can accommodate a little higher Portion of students. For uh, both of you and for all your institutions and for everybody in the country, it's been kind of like a series of uh, difficult variables keep getting thrown at you, making it more and more uh, having a compounding effect almost. And of course, back to school occurs as we're seeing a trend upwards in the infection rate. I don't want to call it a spike because I don't think it is a spike, but it's trending not in the direction that we'd like right now. And as you say, there's regional variations to that as well. What kind of special measures? are being taken in the institutions in order of not just physical distancing plans, which you've sort of spoken to a little bit, but testing, contact tracing, those sorts of things. Uh, Paul? Well, again, uh, universities across the country have worked very closely with their local public health officials, their provincial health officials, and the federal government as well to identify the best practices to ensure the safety. And so 
in many cases, that does include testing capacity, that does include tracing capacity. It involves uh, you know, the pivot plan that when X occurs, the following procedures will take place. I mean, universities learned a lot, as did colleges in the, in the uh, mid-March period, about what needs to happen either in ramping up or pivoting back, depending on the pace of the pandemic. So I, I don't have a lot more to to offer uh, on this uh, because uh, institutions uh, had to uh, adapt uh, literally uh, to uh, to this uh, new way. We know that uh, some of our members what they they've done. Uh, they've shared the plan. All of them, in fact, have shared the plan with the local health authorities and to ensure that it was adequate. And also, what do you do in case there is one infection? What do you do if there are two? And at the end of the day, it's not the institutions who will decide to close. It will be the local health authority that will decide to, to close the institutions if they feel that there is a danger for more propagation and things like that. One of the things we know, normally at the beginning of the school year, especially for the new students, you have the famous orientation in many cases, they have moved to an online orientation uh, where sometimes they have even assigned a body uh, that is from a higher, uh, uh, higher grade, not grade, but you know, of another year, year two or year three to support them and serve as a kind of a body system. Uh, but uh, they're taking all kinds of measures. I'm quite impressed by the way. Are there special measures for testing and contact tracing that the institutions have trained themselves in and prepared themselves for? It's interesting because today I was talking with a, a company, in fact, that was telling me about the work that they are doing with one of our members and uh, it is related to contact tracing. I would not say it's across the board, it depends. Uh, in some cases, they have their own homemade systems that they have developed, and in others, it's manual, but it's, it's, it's not something across the board. But what I can say is that there are measures in place that the local health authority were comfortable with, with respect to what do you do if there is something that happens. Paul, you, you want to come in here. Again, one of the things that, that the pandemic has shown all Canadians is how tightly connected the public health sector is with the colleges and university sector. That the, the, the talent we train ends up working in the public health sector. The, uh, the, the uh, research that's done on how best to manage the pandemic is done in universities and in colleges. And so that, that very tight connection between the public health sector and the higher education sector underscores uh, uh, the nature of, of, of how Canada is getting through this pandemic. It's, it's a competitive asset for Canada. I'm glad you say that, uh, Paul, because for example, we had uh, a member that had a gym that they uh, put at the disposal of the local health authority to increase the hospital in bracket space, if you want. So in case the, the hospital could not surface to the demand, then the spillover was going into that gym. So, and this was, was great. And the other thing I should mention is how we were able to graduate, in fact, uh, from the winter semester, uh, some uh, students that were in critical areas where we needed those skills. And so we were able to uh, speed up <laughs> their graduation, in fact, shortened by three, four weeks so that they would be available to for the health uh, sector. Of course, all students, I think, and I don't want to have a blind spot here of issues around low-income students, perhaps, but, you know, practically all students have a, have a smartphone. I think that with the kit today and in the way that other things, uh, a protractor might have been once upon a time ago or something, are there any special measures to try to download some of the apps that are helpful here, contact tracing apps? Is there, is there something being done to 
not necessarily mandate it, but to really educate and encourage? It, it, of course, if you live in Ontario, uh, there has been strong encouragement to, uh, to do so. I hope you did it too, Ed and Paul. Absolutely. I have downloaded that Government of Canada app with the very clever Bluetooth connection, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there are tools that exist uh, that were put in place. And I know that the, in some places it's manual, you know, you go to a store and you, you, you have to sign your name before you can come in and with your phone numbers so that in case something happens, so there are similar measures that are being put in place, but in many cases it's electronic. Yeah, and I, I would jump in because another whole element of the conversation about uh, the pandemic is the impact on the research enterprise, and so uh, yes, many many researchers had to uh, had to uh, wind down their research in the critical first few weeks. We were also ramping up COVID research very quickly, and also re-engaging researchers onto campuses with with really strict protocols and getting them back uh, back at work uh, in their research labs. So that's been an, another dimension. If I could, Red, I'd also want to pick up. I mean, you did acknowledge that, that there are those that, that do not have access to high-speed internet, but that's been one of the uh, most urgent things we've seen across the country is the very uneven impacts of uh, internet distribution in the country. And, and really hearing stories of students that finished writing their exams from a parking lot of Tim Hortons, because Tim Hortons had the high speed and they did not in their home or, or, or could not access otherwise. So as we think about what do we take from, what do we learn from this? Where do we need to accelerate our policy efforts? Uh, that, that increased access to broadband is, is a widely felt need. There's two or three questions like that that I wanna to go to uh, in a moment, including very much the digital infrastructure question that's been of interest to the public policy forum for at least four years. I can remember the first time that we started writing about this. But let me just let me just ask you before we get there. You know, I like you have been very struck. At, you know, or six kids living in a house and having two computers or no computers. Or you know, there's a lot of issues here that we have to think about about uh, digital access and digital capability. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute. I, I want to ask you about the value proposition for students. You know, and the perception of the value proposition, particularly. You know, I hear a lot of students saying that I'm getting less of an experience and I have to pay the same tuition. And institutions themselves are going to be under budget pressure and they're going to feel this kind of pressure point, I think. What's the response to that? I'm having less of an experience. University is also about meeting other people, about talking in common rooms, uh, arguing, developing your mind, comparing your lab studies. And, and that will be tamped down to some extent, but you still are collecting the same uh, form of tuition. Paul, I'll put you on the spot first here. Sure, thanks, Ed. And, and uh, listen, we understand, we, we, we understand that uh, the pandemic is creating stress and tension and difficulties for folks. The fact that the Government of Canada stepped up with the largest student aid package in the G20 by a factor of five is something that has to be underscored, right? The $9 billion in student aid has given confidence to students and their parents that the value proposition, the educational experience is, is worthwhile pursuing. And that's so important. Now on the question of tuition, um, universities have been investing significantly in the pedagogical experience. So yes, you may not have a conversation in a common room, but you're going to have digital conversations with students from around the world. And yes, you may not have a physical club you can go to, but you're going to have online clubs. Uh, Denise was talking about orientation weeks across the country. Uh, those have been going on in some cases for several weeks in advance. So people are arriving at their courses already with a cohort of peers with whom they've engaged intellectually and socially and in other ways. And so there, are, there, is, a, there is a value proposition to be had in that. I guess the other thing I would say is that uh, everyone hopes the pandemic will not be forever. And so we want to get back to normal just as soon as we can. And we want, to, we want to learn the lessons in the last few months to ensure that the student experience remains enhanced and enriched. I'd also add, and, and this is less about, about the cost of tuition or the, or the tuition fees being paid, but the other element, in addition to investing in technology and, and pedagogy and making sure the campus is safe, it's about accommodating student needs. The student financial support offered by the Government of Canada is real. The student financial support offered by universities is substantive and increased. 
And we've also provided increased mental health support, increased career counseling, and, and adapted uh, the work integrated learning experiences as, as, uh, uh, as Denise was speaking about. And so universities are committed to providing a first-class experience and a first-class education. And uh, yes, there are costs associated with that. But again, you look around the world and we've got a very strong value proposition. Okay, well, you both emphasized this $9 billion package and obviously it takes a lot of pressure off and is very responsive to uh, this unique situation. But right now, if you had one ask of governments, I'm, I'm not going to say necessarily the government of Canada, it could be uh, provincial governments because of jurisdictional issues, but if you had a single ask right now, Denise, what would it be? I have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I know that we don't want to do an entire shopping list. Okay, okay. So let's let's hope we can uh, tag team uh, uh, Paul and I so that he will cover things that I'm also interested in. So uh, one of the things that is extremely important, I will just continue on this uh, spirit of online, uh, because in fact, it's more costly to offer courses online. Uh, and when you do it hands-on, it's very, very difficult to do professional and technical education and training. So instead of offering your, your hands-on lab or workshop once, you have to offer it three times. So this is more costly to do so. So if I would have one ask, um, would be, uh, I'll divide it in two parts because it's all related to online, is <laughs> $1.4 billion to assist, in fact, the colleges and institutes to uh, uh, continue to improve the, the online experience because that's extremely, extremely important. And linked to that, uh, we, we are looking at $75 million. That's not a lot. Uh, in fact, to uh, have a, a national platform where you could have virtual modules that could be used by any college or institute across the country. Because each of those modules normally they cost between fifteen dollars to $20,000 for about five to eight minutes of virtual reality or augmented reality. You cannot expect a faculty to have hundreds of those for their course. But just imagine if we could put online all the ones that already exist, and then if we could add funding to encourage colleges to do even more to fill the gaps. I think Canada could then uh, have a leading edge with respect to online education and it could serve us on the, uh, on the long run. So that's one of, of our asks right now. That's very interesting. Before we go to Paul, just tell me, we, you know, we've been talking for many years now about so-called MOOCs, these massive open courses. We have private sector firms like Coursera and others that, that offer courses like this. What are you talking about there that's different, that's not, if you will, already uh, available? Okay, when you teach uh, in professional and technical education and training, it's not only about theory, it's, it's about the experience, but it's also about the local context. You have to take into account the environment, you have to take into account the resources that exist. So whether you teach forestry or you are in constructions or in manufacturing, so the local context is extremely, extremely important. And the modules that I'm talking about would be modules that could be used, but then the faculty would localize, uh, would give the local context if you want. It doesn't, please remember, it does not replace the in-person. We still need the in-person, but at least it gives you a, a, a kind of leading edge, if you want, and to prepare you for when you will be able to go in-person. Paul, what is your number one ask? Well, before getting to the ask, let's talk about what the public policy objectives are, right? The first is we want to help accelerate the economic recovery and the social recovery of Canada, and universities are going to be instrumental in that. 
The second is how do we equip people with the skills they need in a, in a disrupted economy? And so to pick up on Denise's point, we've got several million Canadians that right now are at home and their skills are withering. Uh, colleges and universities both, because of the developments in online provision of education, can sharpen those skills, can enhance the outcomes. This is something we've talked about with the Public Policy Forum beforehand. A number of the things we've talked about before the pandemic are even more urgent now. So how do we accelerate into the future that we want for Canada? And I guess the third public policy objective we have is to position Canada internationally for prosperity by the quality of our people, by the caliber of our research, and by our openness. And so if you, how do you boil that down into asks? Well, to accelerate the recovery, uh, one, uh, one item that's under very active uh, conversation right now is green digital, digital and accessible infrastructure. Uh, that's something that universities and colleges have both been, have both been uh, uh, proven they can deliver quickly and well. When we think about equipping uh, uh, students and, and all adults in Canada for the skills they need, continuing the conversation about the future of work and the provision of the, the tax credits that can help uh, facilitate that. And when we think about positioning Canada internationally, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked yet about the $22 billion a year that international students contribute to Canada. And we have an opportunity to come out of this pandemic even stronger as people that believe in open borders, that believe in immigration, that believe in higher education. And those are the kind of directions we, we will be talking about in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, I know that Denise cleverly uh, gave us a 1A and a 1B, and you, I know, have touched at least on three uh, on three things there because it anticipates uh, three of my questions that are coming up. So let's take them one at a time. You know, Public Policy Forum has been very interested, and both of you have been very involved in discussions about the future of work uh, over, over the last uh, number of years, the transformation of the economy and how we prepare people for a transformation that's um, largely technologically based, but also sustainability based, a series of things sweeping through. And governments have begun to, you know, before the pandemic had begun to respond to this and had spent a lot of time thinking about it. And certainly, you know, we've been interacting a lot with them, but it's sort of like the future of work became the present of work almost overnight. So when you say skills are even more important now, and what do we need to do? What has moved up the priority list very rapidly? Uh, so what, what has moved up is those that are left behind. Uh, because uh, what this pandemic has shown is that those that uh, are in low social uh, economic background, in fact, have been more affected. And this is critical. And uh, because of that, there are two basic aspects that I would say that are important. First is what I called inclusion. And the second one is what I called access. So if I look at inclusion, what is important is to ensure that there are programs that, uh, that cater to the needs of uh, those uh, individuals that we do not want to leave behind. And I will give an example of the indigenous population. In the college and institute system, we have hundreds of programs that were tailor-made for that specific clientele to take into account the needs of their, the community where they are. And the good news is that if you compare the percentage of indigenous students that have a diploma with the percentage of non-indigenous students that have a diploma, guess what? It's the same percentage. So it means that we have been successful in the inclusion of indigenous people in the college and institute systems and in the trades. In fact, it's 1% more indigenous than it is non-indigenous. So, so are you concerned about backsliding here? Yes, I am. I'm very concerned. All of this work up to now has occurred uh, over the last several years in, in the context of a historically tight labor market, which has made employers 
perhaps more expansive from their outlook of uh, 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 new entrants, historically marginalized uh, workers, whether disabled, indigenous, uh, um, uh, racialized, uh, et cetera. So now we no longer have that historically tight labor market. Now we have a, a much more slack labor market. So is that context change things uh, in what you're saying? I told you there were two things that were important, inclusion and access. So I've talked about inclusion, but let me talk about access right now. When we talk about access, what is important is, is the reskilling and upskilling. One of the big barriers right now is that often people are being asked to repeat what they've done. That doesn't make sense, but because sometimes they don't have the credentials, the official credentials, and they are being asked to repeat. I, uh, Paul and I, we have signed an agreement, uh, what is it, Paul, five, six, five years ago, I think, to increase the number of articulations agreements between our two types of institutions. And this has been quite successful, but we still have a number of people that have skills, but they have no paper. They haven't gone to post-secondary. So what I say is important is what we call prior learning assessment recognition. It's a must in this country that people, before they entertain even the possibility of going back to reskill or upskill, is that they do what we call PLAR, so that we know what they have done so that we can capitalize on the knowledge they already have for which they could be uh, they could have credentials recognized so that they could focus on areas that uh, uh, are advantageous for them because it would be of a shorter duration and of course broadband 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 and if i can jump in just a couple of quick things on that and 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 you know, I think it was budget 2019, it was dubbed a talent budget, a skills budget. And, and there was a real commitment to upskilling and reskilling and universities and colleges together were prepared and are prepared to continue to advance that quickly. It was also the budget that talked about work integrated learning. And I've got to do a shout out to the employers in this country who have maintained their commitment to work integrated learning despite the economic turmoil we're in. Uh, talking to universities across the country today, you know employers who have increased the number of internships that they're taking on have migrated online. Um, it's, it's really been uh, uh, a confidence builder that, that people aren't just talking about how do we move forward, we are moving forward, in, even in, in spite of the pandemic. And so when we look about what are the things that we need to do, there are a number of issues that existed before the pandemic that will reappear and reemerge very quickly. And in Atlantic Canada, there is still a demographic challenge uh, that, that taken together, uh, the uh, Atlantic provinces and colleges and universities work together to attract international students to offset that decline. There are still going to be thousands of people retiring in the Canadian economy in coming, uh, in coming years. And so we've got to keep the pipeline humming, the pipeline of talent humming, and for both colleges and for universities. And the, the other thing, the other thing, sorry, Ed, but that is important in last fall, we did the, a survey of Canadians and we found out that 98% of Canadians believe in lifelong learning and are interested in lifelong learning, but barriers. One was time and the other one is financial. So what is needed is to ensure that there are incentives, in fact, to encourage people to continue to upskill or reskilled. I was going to ask you specifically about the Canada training benefit, because if you want to talk about, you know, putting a toe in the water in an era before we had the pandemic and before we had double digit unemployment, that was a toe in the water. I suspect that governments themselves would think now $250 a year accumulated over time up to $5,000 is not going to uh, change behavior well enough. So what do you think needs to be done and how quickly does it need to be done? I think it's urgent to have a kind of vouchers that could be uh, available for people. And it needs to be something that is quick to obtain and that in fact is also linked to 
their uh, the, the the prospective employment that exists because unfortunately when they announced this this was not done in discussions with the 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 private sector the industry sector and the labor sector and the amount of money didn't make sense and unfortunately it was linked to ei and when you link things to ei unless there's a big reform to the ei it cannot work uh, because you you would leave behind the gig uh, employees the uh, people that were already employed because what we're talking about here is not only unemployed people it's not only students that are in colleges and universities but those that are employed either underemployed or they know that they are on the verge of losing their jobs and that's one of the reasons i'm, I'm really quite op optimistic about the current circumstance that canada finds itself in like by and large we've managed the pandemic well we've mitigated the risks well we've shown that the higher education community the business community the public policy community can iterate and can develop uh, pretty quickly in a whole range of fronts and so you know while other countries are dealing with other challenges it is a chance for canada to move ahead and and that's that's why i remain very hopeful about this public policy environment we're working in over the last several months we've seen the public service be able to uh, innovate in real time uh, to meet unprecedented needs and if we can keep that spirit going and not sort of drive back down to some of the way we used to uh, you know, first discuss is it a federal or provincial problem, then discuss is it a private sector problem or a, or a higher education problem. We have shown an ability to innovate on the fly. I like the idea of flowing more money to people and having it more flexible. You say vouchers, uh, which is an idea, you know, I, I almost think if you would flip the two numbers inside the Canada training benefit, $250 a year up to $5,000 lifetime, if you sort of say, you could use your $5,000 and then work it off a $250 a year in a sense. I think that's the kind of change in environment that we've had. Yeah, yeah. And the link to that, because Ed, you're interested in public policy, you would think, why is there a limit of age to the regime um, d'épargne How do you say that in English? To the REE? I think. R-E-S-P. Uh, uh, okay, but why, I'm not talking about the pension plan, I'm talking about the study the plan. plan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Why, R-E-S-P, I think. Why is there a limit of age when you talk about a lifelong learning environment? In fact, you should be able to use that provisions of funding for any upskilling or reskilling that you want to do in your entire life. The other problem with the training benefit that was announced, there was an age of 65. You want to break isolations of senior people, but again, you put a limitation because there are more and more people that are still working at 65 and even at 70, but why put a limitation? Well, and uh, we, we have a paper coming out soon in our Rebuild Canada series that, uh, that will make that point about the fast growing plus 65 worker and entrepreneur and people starting new businesses. Yeah, so yeah. we need to go there. Look, there are two issues that you've raised during the course of this conversation that I promised to get back to. So let's go back to those. Let's start with international students. You know, Paul, you mentioned that this is a huge source of income, obviously for universities and colleges, but uh, but for the country as a whole, the country's balance of payments, its current account with the with the rest of the world. So what's happening on that front right now is the country's not accessible uh, physically to people from outside in many instances. Are you seeing uh, a sharp drop in international students? Does that imperil the entire financial model of the system? So let me, let me just reiterate the economic benefit to Canada of international students, because it's not just the sector itself. And it's $22 billion a year. So that's bigger than softwood, bigger than wheat, as big as auto parts. That's how big international students are to the grocery stores, to the auto dealers, to the uh, people who rent their basements out to students. This is real economic benefit that's felt in communities large and small across the country. 
Yeah, and just so people can understand that, Paul, it's kind of it's sort of like an export industry in the way that tourism is an export industry. It's an export industry where instead of sending our goods and people sending their money, uh, or our services and people send their money, we we provide the services here. And so it's it's really important to the communities. It also increases opportunities for Canadian students because universities and colleges can offer a wider set of programs and courses if you have those international students present with you. I will say it's been one of the most challenging files over the last six months. And it's it's in part because of the nature of the pandemic. You know, the places we draw students are having challenges with the pandemic. We wanna make sure that we maintain the health and safety of, of Canadians, but we also wanna maintain a stance where our border is open and that students can come to uh, to pursue their education in a way that's, uh, that's uh, safe and, and fruitful for both Canadians and the international students. No, I, I just want to add to what you're saying, Paul, is that um, I'm glad that you mentioned the amount of money it represents. And it also uh, means that 170,000 people, Canadians, work because of the international students in all corners of this country. And very often there is this myth that exists that international students take domestic seats. This is a myth. This is false because in fact, they fill the gaps and, uh, and very often they are uh, communities where there would be less offerings if the international students would not be coming. Like I know a Cégep, Cégep the, the Matan, half of their students come from overseas. And it is thanks to the international students that they are able to offer the type of programs that they are offering to the domestic students. But I want to come back to also something that we don't measure, but from a public policy perspective that is important, is that those international students, they will go back in their country for a number of them, and they become important allies for Canada, for the people-to-people -people connections, for, for trade connections. And, and many of those international students, they may become permanent residents because we know that a number of them, they don't on, uh, only want to come to study in Canada, and have experience in Canada, but they intend to immigrate. And even this morning in the Globe and Mail, there was an article talking about the need to increase those uh, immigration students, uh, those uh, levels of immigration. And if we don't have international students in the number that we have known, it could have an impact on the immigration also. So the borders do remain closed, and that's, that has been a challenge. What has happened is that universities and colleges have been able to offer uh, courses online, and students can begin their work online with the expectation that they will come to Canada. I will say the Government of Canada has been remarkably flexible and innovative in, in addressing those needs so that people's time studying online in their country of origin will count towards their postgraduate work permit. Um, people have done... Uh, have done very, uh, have worked very hard to try to do as best as they can. But while the borders remain closed, this is an area where there'll be less economic activity in Canada as a result of that. How, how much less? I mean, if it was 22 billion last year, what order of magnitude are you expecting this year? Well, again, we are, uh, when we're looking at international enrollment, it's just in the next few weeks that we'll get firmer numbers. But our, our members are calculating between 33% and a 50% uh, reduction in in international student participation. And, and international students would make up for some, obviously it different, it's different for universities. The University of Cape Breton is oddly enough, uh, perhaps the most reliant in the country on international students. The University of Toronto is very reliant to coming from a different place. So what is it, 20% of their budget? Well, more than, more than uh, half of all university revenue is earned from tuition and more than half of all uh, tuition is earned from international students. 
Okay, well, that would be plus 25% plus if my arithmetic is good. So that's a, a lot exposed if a third comes off that. We're talking about, you know, 10% of, uh, of the university's revenues or something. And the $9 billion has not addressed that particular shortfall. Not at all. There hasn't been a penny for institutions so far, at least for the colleges. Another day, we're going to talk about the merits and the arguments, uh, the contention around international students, but we're going to, uh, we can have an entire 45 minutes on that, and probably we should, but I do want to end, or almost end, on, on the digital question, which we discussed a lot, accessibility being part of it, the entire uh, digital infrastructure. So, you know, one of the things about digital infrastructure that I guess we've seen over the last number of months, obviously in commerce, people are working from home, people are doing their retail over the internet, but public services, public services, health, education, even justice are now being carried out increasingly on this digital system that we have. Is the digital system up to it in toto? And then there's the issue of the distribution of that system and access to it. Paul? Well, I guess, first of all, I'd say that, that what the pandemic has shown is that we do need to invest heavily in, in digital access for Canadians in communities large and small, in remote communities. Uh, we really do need to see that kind of uh, pan-Canadian investment in the infrastructure for all the things you've talked about, delivery of health, delivery of justice, delivery of social services, and for higher education. And then within the subset of higher education, including colleges and universities, it's it, again, enabling and facilitating the investments in robust online learning to make sure that Canada is amongst the best in the world. We've got some of the best universities and colleges in the world. We've got some of the best digital technology in the world. You bring those two together, we will be unstoppable. And, and those kinds of investments are precisely what both colleges and universities are asking for in the coming weeks and months, because uh, we have an opportunity as, uh, as leaders for Canada to, to really step forward and improve uh, the delivery of education of all kinds through the digital environment. So I want to go back to the broadband again, because right now it's not a level playing field. This needs to be addressed on an urgent matter. The second thing is that what we've discovered is that last uh, March, we had students that didn't have access to a computer. We had students that didn't have access to Wi-Fi. And it meant that our members needed to supply computer or supply uh, tablets or supply access to Wi-Fi even because the, the students just didn't have it. Six months have we plugged that unacceptable gap. Um, I would say that there's still need. I think they, uh, there was, um, they were able to cover a, a, a lot of them. I was talking to one of my members last week and who said that he had bought a, a thousand computers and made them available for the students. But does it mean that there's nobody that doesn't have yet a computer? I cannot you know, tell you that. I don't know. There may still be because sometimes it's embarrassing also for students to say, look, I don't have access to a computer or there are six children at, at our place and my mom and dad also need the computer for their work. So what do we do if we have two computers at home? So and I think there are still needs that need to 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 be addressed. But the biggest one, the largest one, is broadband access and these things about computer equipment because in the great nine billion of dollars, there was nothing addressing those. And those uh, are for our most vulnerable population, the one that needs it. Well, I know that we talk a long time about many issues in a country, in all countries, before we get to them. I, I know that we've been talking about remote and rural access to uh, the internet. We didn't use the word broadband back in the 1990s, but I know we've been talking about it since the 1990s. And 
making, I imagine, slow progress, but not sufficient progress. And it's a form, you talk about inclusion, it's a form of, uh, of uh, economic exclusion. It's geographically based exclusion. And that's no more acceptable than any other uh, form of exclusion. So we will hope that we can move ahead and get the kinds of investments that we need to get in both for people who don't have access, but for the entire system itself as we're moving towards a 5G era. And there's competitive issues. There's all sorts of issues that are, uh, that are wrapped up here. I want to thank you both. We covered a lot of ground. I feel like we've covered almost none of the ground that we should cover, but we did uh, cover a lot. And I, I suppose the bottom line, of course, is always the student experience and the ability of students to use their education, both uh, socially, as citizens, and, and economically as well. I know that if we look back at the 0809 recession, and you fast forward 10 years to 2018, 2019, you see that the kids who graduated into that recession did not do as well. They paid a price. They paid a price in income. They paid a price in the quality of their work. And when we look back 10 years from now, because there's uh, not just what your institutions are doing, there's, there's an economy that, and what it's doing and its receptivity as well, we, we don't want people to have been left behind because they had the misfortune of graduating at the wrong time. I encourage your members to you know, keep at it because uh, as we all know, these are real people. This isn't remote policy we're talking about. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Denise. Great conversation. Thanks so much, Ed. Great to be with you. Good to see Denise. See you soon. Take good care. Bye, Paul. Bye, Ed. Here on Policy Speaking, we have entered into a new little wrinkle in the proceedings, which is an obscure question of the week for our listeners. We've asked J.D.M. Stewart, history teacher extraordinaire and author of the 2018 book, Being Prime Minister, to challenge and distract us with something trivial but meaningful in these days of everything uh, being so monumental. So you have an opportunity to respond. We're going to ask the question in a moment. We're going to review last week's question. You can respond on PPF's Twitter or Instagram accounts, and you will get a uh, extraordinary verbal pat on the back during our next episode if you've been the quickest to post the correct answer. So the first question from last week, as you'll recall, was about the smallpox vaccine. We were talking about vaccines, and we want to know what was the first institution in Canada to produce vaccines to fight smallpox. The answer to the last question is the vaccine farm in Palmerston, Ontario, which was established in 1885 by Dr. Alexander Stewart, no relation to our question writer. Dr. Stewart was described in the Canadian Bulletin of Medical History as an enterprising energetic general practitioner and his farm located west of Toronto created, tested and processed smallpox vaccines from inoculated calves. And that vaccine was sold from the farm for 31 years until 1916 when it was transferred to a University of Toronto laboratory, which later became Connaught Laboratory, the very place where insulin was discovered in 1921 by doctors Frederick Banting and Charles Best. And we want to congratulate Bram Abramson, who was the first to tweet us the correct response. And now for this week's question, since we're talking about universities, we're going to remind people that no university in Canada was left unaffected by the 1918-19 Spanish influenza, which closed the country's schools from, for anywhere from a couple of weeks to a few months. And as well, some schools uh, turned campus buildings, as Denise was telling us has happened uh, today, into temporary hospitals. So I want to just ask which two well-known buildings at Kingston's Queen's University were turned into hospitals in that period of the 1918-19 Spanish influenza. This may be biased a little bit towards Queen's graduates, but we'll count that in, factor that into our answer. So again, which two well-known buildings at Kingston's Queen's University were turned into hospitals during the 1918-19 Spanish influenza? And before I go, I just want to, um, as we do at the end of the podcast, take a moment to salute some of their, our members of PPF who are going above and beyond the call of duty at this period in, uh, in the country's history. This week, I want to recognize the Mental Health Commission of Canada 
The MHCC leads the development and dissemination of innovative programs and tools to support Canadians' mental health and wellness. And given the ever-changing events around the COVID-19 pandemic, it is more important than ever to safeguard mental wellness. With that in mind, the Commission has created a resource hub called Mental Health and Wellness during the COVID-19 pandemic, which offers tip sheets, training materials, webinars, and policy briefs on topics such as managing stress, providing leadership in the workplace, and maintaining social connections in the era of physical distance. This is very important. I think it's a good idea if you all visit the site from the Mental Health Commission of Canada and put it into practice. We are, as we say, PPF proud of our member. And that is a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum. And if you enjoy this episode, let us know on Twitter at PPForumCA and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.